Welcome to Music History Monday for February 12th, 2024. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Unauthorized Use. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. February 12th is one of those remarkable days in music history, remarkable for all the notable events that took place on this date. So, before getting to our featured topic, let us acknowledge some of those events and share some links to previous Music History Monday and Dr. Bob Prescribes posts that dealt with those events. On this day in 1812, Beethoven's student and friend, the Austrian composer, pianist, and teacher Karl Czerny, 1791-1857, performed as the soloist in the premiere of Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 5 in E-flat major, The Emperor. Czerny was the subject of Music History Monday on July 15, 2019. We wish a heartfelt farewell to the German pianist and conductor Hans von Bülow, who died on this date in Cairo, Egypt in 1894 at the age of 64. Von Bülow was the subject of both Music History Monday and Dr. Bob prescribes just last month on January 8 and 9, respectively. Birthday greetings to the American composer Roy Harris, 1898-1979, who was born on this date in 1898 in Chandler, Oklahoma. Harris and his Symphony No. 3 were featured in my Dr. Bob Prescribes post on April 9, 2019. On February 12, 1924, exactly 100 years ago today, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue received its premiere at Aeolian Hall in New York City. Gershwin, 1898-1937, accompanied by the Paul Whiteman Orchestra, played the solo piano part. George Gershwin and his music have been featured regularly on my Patreon page, including Music History Monday on July 11, 2022, and in Dr. Bob Prescribes posts on October 20, 2020, and January 5, 2021. Finally, we mark the death on February 12, 1959, of the American composer George Antile, 1900-1959, at the age of 58 in New York City. Antile was the subject of Music History Monday on July 8, 2019. With no further ado, it is finally time to move on to today's topic. On February 12, 1797, 227 years ago today, Joseph Haydn's String Quartet in C Major, Opus 76, Number 3, nicknamed Emperor, reputedly received its premiere. The quartet's nickname, Emperor, 
stems from the hymn tune Haydn employed in its second movement theme and variations, a hymn Haydn had composed just a few months before. This elegant and stately hymn through a route most circuitous, it's a route that will be detailed in a bit, eventually became the national anthem of Nazi Germany, an anthem that began with the words Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, or Germany, Germany above all else. Had Joseph Haydn, who was a kind, considerate, gentle, optimistic, old-world man of peace and goodwill, had even an inkling that a depraved criminal regime was going to adopt his hymn as its anthem, and as a result, forever link his hymn with that regime. He would likely first have vomited, and then burned the manuscript of the hymn and every copy he could get his hands on. The Nazis' adoption of Haydn's hymn for its own political ends was neither the first nor last example of something we call today unauthorized use. Unauthorized use, yes indeed, heaven help us. We are presently immersed in yet another presidential election cycle involving a person who appears to love lawsuits the way a vampire loves blood. So as not to offend anyone, we will refer to this individual as you-know-who. An easy observation. Most, if not all, of today's candidates for office will use music with their campaign rallies. And since no one stages more such rallies than you-know-who, no campaign employs more music than that of you-know-who. However, since such usage implies an endorsement from the musicians whose music is played, most musicians not named Ted Nugent object mightily to you-know-who using their music for his own political ends. For example, Adele has stated outright that you-know-who may not use her songs. Steven Tyler and Aerosmith have sent you-know-who's people multiple cease and desist from using their music letters. George Harrison's estate denounced you-know-who's campaign for using Harrison's Beatles song, Here Comes the Sun. Although in a move clearly ironic, Harrison's estate did offer the campaign the use of the song, Beware of Darkness. Rather than take legal action when you-know-who's campaign played Born in the USA at its rallies in 2016, Bruce Springsteen simply endorsed Hillary Clinton. Creedence Clearwater Revival's John Fogarty sent the you-know-who campaign a cease-and-desist letter stating that it was, quote, using my words and my voice to portray a message that I do not endorse, unquote. Elton John has publicly objected to you-know-who using his songs, as has Guns N' Roses and the estates of Isaac Hayes, Leonard Cohen, and Luciano Pavarotti. In 2020, Neil Young wrote an open letter to you-know-who, reading in part, quote, Every time one of my songs is played at your rallies, 
I hope you hear my voice. Remember, it is the voice of a tax-paying U.S. citizen who does not support you." Unquote. Other musicians slash bands whose legal teams have sent cease and desist letters and threatened legal action to you-know-who include Ozzy Osbourne, Farrell Williams, Phil Collins, Queen, R.E.M., Rihanna, The Rolling Stones, The Village People, and the estates of Tom Petty and Prince. And yet, and yet not a single one of these and many other like objections has stopped the you-know-who campaign from using and reusing their songs at political gatherings. So we rightly ask, if artists object to someone using their music, how can they continue to do so anyway? Here's how. Medium to large American venues, those venues that would host sporting events, conventions, trade shows, concerts, fairs, and political rallies, have licenses with what are called Performance Rights Organizations, or PROs. There are three principal PROs in the United States. ASCAP, which stands for American Society of Composers and Publishers, BMI, Broadcast Music Incorporated, and CSAC, Society of European Stage Authors and Composers. These PROs have standing licenses with the venues. The venues pay the PROs a fee for music played at the venue, and the PROs then send money to the artists whose music was played. What all of this means is that legally, the licensee of the music is the venue, and not any particular political campaign. Nevertheless, many artists have still tried to prevent certain politicians from using their music because they believe it implies an endorsement of their candidacy. Let us acknowledge that morally conscious, law-abiding political organizations that receive cease and desist letters will do so, if only to avoid legal fees and negative PR but not the campaigns of you-know-who, for which the threat of a lawsuit is not just meaningless, but an indication that the fun is about to begin. As a result, the licensing agencies, the PROs, are rethinking how they do business. BMI, for example, is now no longer issuing blanket licenses for everything in its catalog to venues. For all I know, ASCAP and CSAC have followed suit. I know about BMI because I myself am a member of that organization. Back to Joseph Haydn. You want to talk about the most egregious example of unauthorized use in the entire history of Western music? We need look no further than the eventual fate of the wonderful hymn that found its way into Haydn's string quartet in C major, opus 76, number three, a string quartet that saw its premiere, reputedly, on February 12, 1797, 227 years ago today. Background. 
1761, the 29-year-old Joseph Haydn was hired as a musical functionary by the fabulously wealthy Esterhazy family of Hungary. 29 years later, on September 28, 1790, Joseph Haydn's boss and benefactor, Prince Nicholas Esterhazy, 1714-1790, passed on to the great unknown. Nicholas was succeeded by his son, Prince Anton, who had little of his father's inclination towards music. Among Anton's first acts as prince was to dismiss almost all of the musicians his father had hired. For his part, Haydn was granted an annual pension of 1,400 florins and sent on his way. Back home in Vienna, the 58-year-old Haydn, whose services were now in great demand, watched as the offers began to pour in. He had already turned down a number of these job offers when a stranger knocked on his door and introduced himself with these words in German, quote, I am Salomon of London and have come to fetch you. Tomorrow we will arrange an accord, unquote. This John Peter Salomon, 1745-1815, was a Bonn-born violinist, composer, and conductor who had been working as a musician and impresario, meaning a concert promoter, in London since 1781. It was in the latter capacity as a London-based impresario that Solomon approached Haydn, and the deal Haydn and Solomon worked out was indeed a sweet one. The plan. Haydn would venture to London and stay for a year or two, write and perform some music, rub shoulders with the hoity-toity, be treated like a prince, and earn the big ducats. All good, yes? Oh, yes. Solomon paid Haydn 5,000 florins up front, this down payment alone being equal to six and one-half years of Haydn's salary under Prince Nicholas Esterhazy. Joseph Haydn departed Vienna for London on December 15, 1790, and returned 19 months later on July 24, 1792. His success in the British capital was such that a second such residency followed, which also lasted for 19 months, from January 1794 until August of 1795. Haydn's London residencies were triumphs. Triumphs for Haydn, triumphs for the British, and most importantly, triumphs for human culture. Among other works, Haydn's two trips to London saw the composition of his last 12 symphonies, collectively known as the London or Solomon symphonies. They are, each of them, transcendent masterworks. Oh, by the way, speaking of Johann Peter Solomon, for all of his many accomplishments, it was for his coup in capturing Haydn that he is best remembered. Solomon is buried in Westminster Abbey. On the tablet that marks his tomb is inscribed, quote, he brought Haydn to England in 1791 and 1794, unquote. For reasons 
both musical and personal, the Brits fell in love with Haydn. That's because Haydn was not just a great composer, but a genuinely lovable man. Caring, generous, self-effacing, funny, boundlessly curious and energetic. Someone who had a kind word for just about everybody. Okay, except for his wife, Maria Anna Aloysia Apollonia Keller, whom he referred to as the Infernal Beast. Joseph Haydn returned the love the locals showed him. He was awed by the size and bustle of London and was particularly taken by the dazzling ceremony and pomp indulged by the British nobility and crown. In particular, Haydn was enamored of the British national anthem, God Save the King, or Queen, depending, the melody of which is known in the United States as my country tis of thee. On returning home to Austria, Haydn expressed his desire to create a like national anthem for Austria, one that could, to quote Haydn himself, be used at festive occasions and show in full measure our respect, love, and devotion to our ruler, Emperor Francis II, unquote. Haydn's friend and benefactor, Baron Gottfried von Swieten, 1733-1803, took Haydn's proposal to the president of Lower Austria, Count Franz von Sarau, who commissioned Haydn to compose a hymn to the poem God Save Franz the Emperor by the poet Lorenz Leopold Hoschka. The music Haydn composed is today his single most famous composition. Haydn himself loved it more than any other music he ever wrote, which is one of the reasons why he so proudly built the second movement of his string quartet opus 6 number 3 around the hymn. According to Haydn's servants, he played the hymn on the piano three or four times a day, every day, up until five days before his death, which occurred on May 31, 1809. Thank heavens he didn't live to see what his beloved hymn was destined to go through over the next 180 years. It would have broken his heart. Anthems Gone Wild, and the checkered history of a wonderful tune. With various lyrics attached, Haydn's hymn remained the Austrian national anthem from 1797 until 1938. Meanwhile, in 1922, following the German defeat in World War I, the newly created German Weimar Republic adopted a song called the Deutschland Lied, the Song of Germany, as Germany's new national anthem. The Deutschland Lied also employed Haydn's hymn tune, but with its own words, words written in 1841 by the poet August Heinrich Hoffmann von Fallersleben, 1798-1874. Herr von Fallersleben's lyric begins with these words, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, Germany, Germany, above all else. 
poor August Heinrich Hoffmann von Thalersleben. Because of the Nazis, his lyrics came to be as unfairly damned as Haydn's hymn. Unfairly, because when von Thalersleben wrote his words in 1841, they expressed the idea that a unified German nation must be considered above the then fragmented political entities that passed at the time for Germany. It was only because of the Nazis that the words came to imply German domination over the world. Speaking of Adolf Hitler's Nazis, on March 12, 1938, Nazi Germany's Eighth Army goose-stepped into Austria and annexed the entire country, making it part of what it called Greater Germany. Consequently, the region formerly known as the nation of Austria adopted the German national anthem as its own, the Deutschlandlied, Song of Germany. Conveniently, the German national anthem also employed Haydn's hymn, though now with words made infamous during Hitler's Third Reich, which lasted from 1933 to 1945, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles. Haydn's glorious hymn was, in the minds and ears of many, forever soiled by its unfortunate association with Nazi Germany. In 1945, with the war over, the victorious Allies banned the Deutschland lead and its performance became a punishable offense. In 1949, the American, British, and French zones of German occupation became the Federal Republic of Germany, or West Germany, and the Soviet zone of occupation was dubbed the German Democratic Republic, the GDR, or East Germany. With the establishment of these two states, the hunt for appropriate national anthems was on. In East Germany, an entirely new national anthem was created, entitled, appropriately enough under the circumstances, Auferstanden aus Ruinen, Risen from the Ruins. In West Germany, it wasn't until 1952, after much wrangling by the federal chancellor, Konrad Adenauer, that the Federal Republic adopted the third verse of the Deutschland Lied as its official national anthem. In 1991, that third verse of the Deutschland Lied was declared the national anthem of a now reunited Germany. Thus, Haydn's hymn remains the melody of the German national anthem to this day. Unfortunately, Haydn's melody is no longer associated with his beloved Austria, a choice made by the Austrians themselves. You see, the post-war world wrestled with a difficult question. Whether to consider Austria as having been a complicit partner of Nazi Germany or Nazi Germany's first territorial victim. Not surprisingly, since the war's end, the Austrians have preferred the latter scenario, and thus, given its association with Nazi Germany, Austria abandoned Haydn's hymn entirely. In 1946, Austria created a new national anthem based on music that was said to be by Mozart, but was actually composed by one 
Johann Baptist Holzer, 1753-1818. Cease and desist? A cease and desist letter sent by Haydn's descendants to the Nazi authorities over their ultimately unauthorized use of Haydn's hymn would not likely have been effective, any more than like letters sent to the campaign of you-know-who. What we do know, for absolute sure, is that Joseph Haydn's single favorite composition deserves a less controversial fate. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.